0: You're listening to 3CR Radio.
1: Two great guests on today's show, musician Thea Riley and political commentator Neil Farrow joins us. And we do have Thea Riley on the line. Thea, welcome to In Your Face. Hey, James. So great to hear your voice.
2: How are you? Yeah, I've been really good, just sort of diving back into work.
1: And what a dive it's been. A new single and a new album. I absolutely love the new album, Sleepy Wolf. Let's start with it. It's instrumental. Was that um was that a hard decision to to take, not to do any vocals?
2: Um I think I just I'm sure like many artists wanted to connect with my roots again. And at the heart of it I am a producer. So I didn't want to leave 2020 having not really made anything. So, you know, it was like December and I just sort of jumped in, but I didn't want it to be as stressful as the usual was. So I just used my iPad and like got comfy. Yeah, I guess it was more of like a self soothing thing. Like, it's a lovely album.
1: Yeah, it's such a lovely album, and I can really hear your trance roots in it. Was that a conscious decision, or did you find that you oh, just can't avoid doing that?
2: No, that was not intentional. <laughs> but that, I mean, that's always good to hear. I feel like when you work in a lot of different genres, they're going to end up kind of, you learn a lot from each of them, and it bleeds through. But, but that's always a good thing.
1: So, tell us about the emotional space that you were in when you produced this album. I mean, it just doesn't come from thin air. There must have been stuff underneath it all just (laughs) dry. Yeah,
2: not at all. Uh, Yeah, I was having really terrible insomnia and I kept putting on these like bedtime mixes or like uh, brainwave theta something. And I thought why don't I do this for myself? So like actually go and sit down at the end of the day, regardless of how the day had been, and like be the vessel for the music to flow through instead of, you know, I have to get this done, I have to do this now <laughs> and it has to sound, you know, of the professional quality that everything else I have uh meets. So it was really mostly about taking the pressure off. And, um, you know, solitude definitely was, um, you know, just no pressures. That's the main rule that I tried to follow.
1: Is it hard to take that pressure off? I mean, you must find that there's so many pressures from fans and people for you to produce a certain kind of sound. How hard is it to kind of, you know, depressurise and disconnect from those pressures?
0: Hmm.
2: I guess pretty difficult, especially when it comes to trance, because trance fans, they really um, only want one thing, and they want the best version of it that you can give. Um, So I don't know. It did feel very empowering, I guess, to, you know, I'm going to do something for me, and... Yeah, I I didn't even necessarily intend for it to be released as a public thing, but I think that it just comforted me so much that I realised I was missing something in the way I work in music in the last few years.
1: Do you think that, you know, you'll put vocals down to some of those tracks? Uh, it must be so tempting Ooh, very to do possible. that.
2: I definitely had, you know, <laughs> some little inspiration tangents come up in my head. But, um, I don't know, as a trans person, I have a lot of mental struggles with my voice. And so I think it was definitely a gift to not, um, to not force anything. And then, you know, those ideas came so naturally for vocals and I didn't sing any, but like they were there, you know, when the pressure was off. So I definitely think some of them will end up on like a future vocal album or something, I don't know, it has such a piece about it. I feel like I've just been trying to bring that to my other projects now.
1: It's, so it's interesting, isn't it? Because you kind of caught your yeah. fans by surprise with, with Sleepy Wolf. I did. <laughs> and then just a few weeks later, there was a follow up single, Complete Me, that's not on the album, that's yeah. very dancey, and it's just a completely different genre to just what people mm-hmm. were getting used to on Sleepy Wolf. You've been keeping your fans I pretty know. busy.
2: And then there's another single out today. Oh, really? <laughs> really and it's like a drum and bass orchestral um lament i guess you would call it yeah and i I really love all the tracks i love if i don't love it i don't make it obviously (laughs) so (laughs) you know and and i think stepping out of the box has like i have so much more joy with music now so like you know why not
1: it's interesting. So, so when did the more joy kick in? Did you find that you were depressed about your music for a while? Like, like tell well, us a bit yeah. more about this journey.
2: Well, uh, I, I do feel that mainly it was about my voice and just dysphoria, and I would just tell myself if I didn't sound enough like a woman, then I wasn't going to sing. Um, but I've been pushing and pushing and pushing through that. I think last time we spoke, I was like six months into that journey. So it's been like a long time. (laughs) Um, and I have come a long way and discovered a lot of new things and new abilities with my voice that I wasn't expecting. Um, and obviously with that comes more joy as you have more like, um, versatility and ease. Um, so it was. It has been a very slow process, but I think um, once I realized I had that pressure on myself, only because of doing the Sleepy album did I realize that. And um, I don't know, I've recorded some of my best yet unheard vocals after making that album. But, you know, I pushed through a lot, so... That was a holiday. It was an album, <laughs> just by accident. But I don't know. There was, um, I guess, it alerted me to my own mental health, hindering my progress, especially with singing, and I wasn't getting getting any joy out of it. Um, and I think maybe 2020 did that for a lot of people in various ways. But um, you know. I guess 2022 was like a step back and like, okay, what do I want out of life? Am I happy? You know, it gives you space to ask those questions. So that's pretty much all that last year was, was those questions.
1: (laughs) I'm fascinated to hear some of the things you've learned about your amazing voice.
2: Yeah, and I can't wait for um, a full-length vocal album too which I'm currently working on <laughs> as the singles slowly come out.
1: It's interesting, you know, like it's it, it sounds like there's a lot of pressure that's been put on you to sound a certain way, even though your voice is incredibly yeah. feminine.
2: Yeah, well, um, I think I internalised a lot of transphobia in my first couple of years of transition. And... Um, Of course, it takes you a while to be self-aware of that Um, because you kind of get to a good place and then you're like, oh, you know, no one's putting that on me anymore. I'm putting that on myself, Um, you know, and I should love myself more. Um, But, you know, who was encouraging me to do that? You know, very few people. So I had to do it. I had to do it for myself and, you know, Thank God, 2020 wasn't worse.
1: <laughs> so it sounds like you've overcome an incredible period of loneliness, and in that loneliness, to get yourself through it, you pulled out all these creative, all these creative yes, ventures, and yes, really dug yes. deep. That's beautiful.
2: Yeah, and Sophie passed, um, and she was an amazing electronic producer, and I don't know that really put a fire under my ass. Same when gigi Divine passed, I, I was like you know, I'm a trans woman and I'm holding myself back from dancing and singing and all these things. And it's so stupid because you only live once. You will only get one chance for all of these things. So just like pull a stop out, like pull all the stops out. <laughs> uh, that's that lifting that um, internalized transphobia, though, I think, you know, because uh, a certain group of people doesn't think that trans women should dance or be in athletics and it's just so many hindrances placed onto us that we individually have to grow through and like shake it off and it's really difficult actually i'm just kind of trying not to get emotional uh
1: it's incredible, though, because, I mean, you've had a really, really amazing experience as as a musician. You were yes. successful before you transitioned, and then you've transitioned and you've been successful. But I imagine you see a lot of double standards uh, in the industry. You know, they're oh, throwing definitely. at trans women compared to, you know, cis men.
2: Yes, yes. And I, I distinctly saw the job opportunities decline, you know, uh, as I... Was more publicly transitioning. And so it, it was hard to see. It was definitely hard to see, but I accepted it. And like I, as close to the ground up, that's pretty much where I've started uh, since transitioning. And then getting back to some level of like, um, I guess you would say calling it a real job because you know you know, making a paycheck and that kind of thing, regardless of how little is, you know, I guess a sign to me that um some recognition or respect of like my work and I know it's not about a paycheck because people are so wonderful and kind and that's like of what fuels me as an artist but like I think I um, you know I can't can't keep going further without a paycheck so I I really have you know tried to work overtime even just to get back to that point where I started at um, and what I achieved before transition (laughs) God I feel like it never stops but um yeah, I definitely feel I'm getting there. I'm getting there.
1: So what new stuff can we expect from you? There's a new single out today. I can't keep up with you, to be honest. It's just incredible. I know, when you're I know. on a roll, you're That's on a roll. That's how role. I like to be. <laughs> um,
2: Well, um, I, I started music, at, well, music production at 19 with Tint. And I think i really I really tailored that side of myself down because people only wanted an acoustic product ten years ago, but it's like everything is so different now, and things are loved and accepted that're shunned for um so I just really want to embrace you know everything that I've enjoyed along the way um And, you know, I think going back to my roots in that way is part of finding that joy again in music making. And, you know, I finished a mix today for a single that's going to come out in probably a month. Um, And I was just so happy from making it because I was like playing with automation on drum parts and bass parts and really like getting the bass to scream. Oh, my God, it's just so much fun and why would you ever hold yourself back just because you know people aren't ready for like what you have to give like yeah so that's what you can hear from me <laughs> just myself giving 110 percent of um everything i am
1: i oh, do tell about this new single please we want we want more details it sounds um it sounds really exciting
2: okay yeah um i wrote the words On a flight home from California, which is where I lived for a year, uh, in 2015. And, um, I don't know, it's been a long time in the wings, and the lyrics have sort of taken on a few different meanings as I go through my life. Um, and I had this acoustic production to it that I just wasn't vibing with, so I held back on the song that, um you know, sitting down with synths and really those inspirational tangents that your brain goes on, they just disappeared for a long time. And, um, you know, taking a song that means so much to me because, you know, it's a song about uh, taking care of yourself. And I had to leave my husband in America to transition, so it's called It'll Be Over Soon just because I was on the flight home, you know, it's like you're almost there, you're almost there, you know, just hold on. You can make it through the the struggle and the anxiety and, like, everything in that situation that is, like, holding you down. Like, yeah. I really want to be uplifting with my music, I think, too, when it comes to the future. So this, putting this synth, uh, up-tempo spin on it was what made it, bring me that joy, you know. It's not a song of sadness, it's a song about overcoming, but I couldn't find the happiness in the song, and so I just, like, tried to go back to my roots. Yeah.
1: It sounds like an incredibly (laughs) important (laughs) song to you. It sounds like
3: you've been digging
1: deep to produce it and it was there for a long time, but it just sounds like you've you've managed to... to... Five
2: years, oh my God. Wow. (laughs) Such a long time, possibly the longest I think it's taken for a song to be released.
1: And what's the song called?
2: It'll be over soon.
1: I really written I, on the
2: flight home from America.
1: <laughs> I can really, I can really see a video coming for that clip for that song.
2: Uh, I really hope so. Oh my god, twenty twenty really threw me off when it came to music videos. I don't know what to do for music videos now, but. Um, I guess we'll wait and see what happens with things. Hmm.
1: Absolutely. Now, you've picked a track for us. It's called Five Alive from Sleepy Wolf. Tell us about Uh Five Alive.
2: So, Five Alive, um, jazz is another thing where I kind of had a phase of it and then I was like, oh, but that's not mainstream. And I worked with a producer that was like, that's not mainstream, take out that seventh chord. And I'm just like, he was so bossy i would never work with him again (laughs) but um i love jazz harmonies and so five alive was just like allowing myself to feel the chords out and the five beat is just like you know it's like when you're not keeping time of uh where uh you know how fast you're walking and it's not in a four or a six or a three or a any number. So I just thought five takes people's mind off the timing signature of the song uh and contributing to um sleep hopefully cuz the album's theme- themed around sleep. So I just wanted it to feel really like I guess like those brainwave videos I was talking about that inspired the album. Yeah, I just I just really wanted it to feel good. That's the thing about the whole album um But I especially love this track because it's just so juicy with the chords.
1: (laughs) It's a beautiful track, Thea Riley. It's been an absolute privilege chatting with you today on 3CR. Thank you so much.
2: No worries. I had so much fun. Thank you.
1: The wonderful Thea Riley there. And here's her track, Five Alive, from her beautiful new album, Sleepy Wolf. joined by political commentator Neil Farrow. Neil, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me again, James. How are you doing? I'm really well. It's awesome to hear hear your voice, Neil. It's It's been a while since we had a chat, and I think it's been over a year since we chatted live to air. So welcome back to the show. It's wonderful to have you on board.
3: Lovely to be there, albeit virtually, uh, dialing in from my home up in Kiton at the moment. I wish I was there in the studio, but soon we'll hopefully be back to some COVID normal and we can do it in person.
1: Absolutely. Now, it's a big week coming up, uh, of course, for the LGBTIQ community and the Victorian Parliament. 40 years since homosexuality was decriminalised in Victoria. What a milestone.
3: It is absolutely a brilliant milestone. Uh, it should have been done probably... Uh, 400 or maybe 4,000 years before that, but um, it is a great milestone that we have had 40 years uh, of decriminalisation in Victoria, and and we've always got to remember that there were some states earlier and some states later, and and for those in Tasmania, it wasn't until 1997, um, so mere 24 years ago, that we uh, decriminalised LGBTI uh, activities or behaviour in in Tasmania. So um, Victoria is one of the earliest states, but there's still... Obviously, uh, a lot more things we have to keep fighting for.
1: Absolutely. And, of course, it seems sweeter, doesn't it, celebrating 40 years after we've just had the uh, conversion practices legislation passed, which uh, activists such as Rodney Croom have said, you know, it's the best in the world.
3: Look, I think the the, the passage of that bill was was a really long fight for a number of activists in our community and I know it was a very hard fight on the floor of Parliament with a lot of uncertainty as to if it would pass and obviously negotiations with the crossbench. Um, but the great part about it is it started, it set the tone now for other states and territories in Australia who have started to pick up this reform based around some of the, uh, the legislative activities that we undertook around conversion therapy in Victoria. So it's really good to see that we're sort of leading the way in this regard and, and we even kicked off after the Victorian legislation was passed uh, ahead of New Zealand, interestingly enough, we've even kicked off a debate um, with our uh, colleagues on the other side of the ditch who are actively pursuing similar sorts of legislation in New Zealand under the uh, Labor government that's there as well. So, you know, a bit of inspirational work that's actually led to um, consequences and outcomes benefiting the broader Pacific uh, community.
1: So what's next for the Victorian government, Neil, when it comes to LGBTIQ law reform? What are your sources telling you? What can we expect next?
3: Look, I'm not actually sure. Uh, I I don't have too much news or gossip in this regard uh, in relation to sort of continued LGBTI reform. I think, you know, the government in Victoria um, is starting to approach an election, so we'll obviously have a state election at the end of next year, probably about 18 months away at the moment. Um, So, you know, we've got a proud legacy of the work that's been happening through the Victorian government for a number of years. Obviously, things like the Pride Centre will open up very soon. I know there's been a lot of support for LGBTI organisations across COVID, um, which will be a big part about that as well. Um, So I'm not fully sure what is next in this space, um, but we have been pretty progressive as a jurisdiction and leading around Australia in a lot of these reforms. So I'm hopeful that will continue um, as we go into an election year next year.
1: But you must have a view on what the government should be doing. I mean, you're a political animal. You're always kind of, you know, taking the community's temperature. You must have a view on what should be done next or what needs to be done Mm -hmm. as a priority.
3: One needs to be done. Look, I think some of the, the legal services and some of the um, uh, the support for LGBTI members of the community um, in a more legal sense is one area that um, I think will need to be continued to be focused on and supported. Um, I think there's still quite a few things to do around um, sort of particularly trans, intersex, um, and probably there's been healthcare where you know we haven't quite haven't quite got there as yet in that space. Um, So there are a couple of the areas that I think sort of watch this space and and see what will happen, um, particularly around some of the sort of more nuanced health needs, some of the legal uh, requirements. And and obviously, I think there's been a lot of pressure at the moment around particularly some of the trans and intersex healthcare clinics, particularly supporting young people. And and I would hope uh, that there's more support given to those in the years to come or year to come.
1: Of course, all the progress could be overshadowed by the federal government's religious discrimination bill, which we're expecting back in federal parliament at any time. Uh, What are your thoughts on its, you know, approaching re-emergence?
3: Look, whenever Peter Dutton comes out and tells anyone that it's a compromise situation or a compromise bill, um, I would always be very, very nervous if I was a member of the LGBTI community. I think for a long, long time it's been used as a sort of Community to to beat or or community to, to use a stick at um, for the benefit of ultra conservative communities and and I am worried about the religious discrimination bill and its reintrodu- reintroduction to Parliament. Um, I'm I'm hopeful that will um, it won't be introduced before the next election and I do hope that neither party will bring that to a um, election in that state. Uh, I definitely know Labor has and the Labor platform doesn't support a lot of the things that were mentioned in the original religious discrimination bill, and I hope Labor continues to hold the line in that space. Um, But, yeah, we should be worried. Anytime Peter Dutton's supportive of something, I think everyone in the LGBTI community should be concerned, but of more concern is the sort of overall hypocrisy we're seeing up in in Canberra at the moment around things like sexual harassment and bullying and things like that, all of which I think are much bigger priorities than a piece of uh, legislation that nobody really wanted or asked for and that the government federally has no mandate to implement or introduce.
1: Yes, I'm going to ask you about uh, the federal shenanigans uh, with sexual harassment in just a moment, Uh, but let's just focus on Labor and uh, the Religious Discrimination Bill. Are you concerned that Anthony Albanese is going to allow a conscience vote on this issue? And if he does, it'll pass. And should progressive MPs be kind of, you know, pressuring uh, their federal colleagues uh, to not allow a conscience vote on this issue?
3: Look, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, for for the sin of potentially getting in trouble, I'm not actually sure that there would be a conscience issue on this issue, on this particular topic, and I'm not sure the party platform allows a conscience issue, um, although I may be wrong in that regard. You know, the Labor Party platform has always been, particularly since I was involved as National Chair of Rainbow Labor a number of years ago, very, very strong on LGBTI rights and reforms, um, and I'm not quite sure that our federal caucus will be able to sort of push those to the side and, and pretend they don't exist. So I, I'm sceptical that we'll get a conscience vote on the Labor side of the fence, um, but... With that uh, that said, it always helps for members of the community to just write to their MPs at a federal level and remind them that this is an important issue because it might be getting drowned out by everything else that's happening at the moment.
1: You mentioned sexual harassment and uh, the federal government. I mean, you just must be wringing your hands together going, oh, my God, what are they doing? This has just been a disaster upon disaster for them and so badly handled. Your comments?
3: Look, I've written on a couple of occasions uh, for sort of some national media as well as uh, community media around sort of the culture of sexual harassment and bullying in Canberra, um, and it occurs on on all sides of politics. And I say it's a tripartisan issue even more than a, it's a bipartisan issue because I know it definitely happens on the crossbenches and minor parties as well. I think it's it's a problem because you've got a workplace that hasn't had much exposure to outside workplaces, that is in a bit of an isolation bubble um, and that is somewhat removed and has quite centralised power. So, you know, I, I would hope that um, some lessons are learnt during this this journey. Um, I definitely think what's happened um, with the allegations uh, against the Attorney-General um, and Scott Morrison's response uh, has been really sad, I, I, I think, and I would have liked to have seen... Uh, a better response from him in relation to these allegations, knowing that this happens often and regularly. But you know it was only two years ago that we were talking about uh, another member of the Liberal Party um having her uh, pants removed and 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 being harassed um in another minister's office, and we've seemingly forgotten about that already. so it's it's a little bit of um the same story. Um, a year later or a year or two later. So disappointing, but not completely unexpected. But do we need to do something about it? Absolutely. And I think all parties need to do something about it, not just the Liberal
1: Party. So what should they be doing? How do they change this culture?
3: Look, one thing, and this is just me sort of freely speaking uh, in no other capacity than being interested in this space, but I really think we need to have some form of independent whistleblower and investigation um, processes and procedures, as you would have in any normal workplace. But for all politicians and staff um, in Parliament House and and those who are employed in that space, you know, having someone who can genuinely investigate, find an outcome, um, enables whistleblowers to come forward. Um, And to be honest, that actual action occurs. And and that's the biggest challenge in this regard is is so few um, uh, complaints... Uh, actually result in any form of enforcement of or, or punishment um and i think all parties need to to change in that regard but establishing some form of independent whistleblower and complaints mechanism as most workplaces would have is definitely the first way and the first uh first step we can make in in making it better for all people up in canberra um uh to prevent harassment and bullying and things like that.
1: You mentioned that the Prime Minister could have handled things a lot better. Should he be uh, announcing an independent inquiry into the allegations against the Attorney-General?
3: Look, I absolutely think he should announce an independent inquiry, um, but one reason uh, to sort of hopefully get to the bottom of of the family and and the circumstances around it and give them some sort of closure. The other thing is by not announcing an inquiry we leave a shadow over the Chief Legal Officer of this country who has the right to be presumed innocent but at the same time in the circumstances there should be some sort of process to either clear his name or or make sure that there's consequences for his actions Um, and by not doing so it just kind of leaves everyone disappointed and and no major step forward. Um, I also think the response have been pretty weak across most sides of politics and science in some regards to actually understanding what the victim and her family has been through and, and what other options of support um, should be provided in the interim. So very disappointed we didn't have an inquiry. Um, I think these sorts of things need to be aired in public a lot more. But as I said, it was only two years ago that we were having a very similar discussion over a very sim- similar similar. Um, uh, uh, member of the Liberal Party up in Canberra and and we seem to forget about these all too quickly. I think the broader thing is... You know, there's just no consequences politically um, if you make a mistake, and, and I'm disappointed that we're continuing to lose that form of accountability. Um, there was, a, in my time, sort of 15, 10 years ago, if you abused a, a, a telephone card for 100 or $150, I think there are three or four ministers in the first iteration of the Howard government who lost their ministry as a result. Um, nowadays, you could almost get away with murder, it seems, and uh, there's still no consequences if you're a federal minister
1: on a different track and on a personal note, Neil uh, this week on Instagram you came out about your journey as a donor dad and included a wonderful photo of you with Jack. Uh, what can you tell us about that journey?
3: Look thats um, that was the first time I'd, I'd shared my little um, donor journey. Um, look for me a number of years ago um, I uh, thought about this seriously and a couple of friends of mine had said you know they'd tried to go through the experience of finding a donor dad and um, there's quite a shortage of donor dads, not just in Victoria and Australia. And so I thought, oh, well, if I can give a little bit of my time and and help out, help somebody else form a family or or help them have a family, um, what's a little bit of my time to do it? So a number of years ago, I went through the journey and I donated for a number of families um, and I have a relationship with a a couple of them. um, And I was really lucky, I said last week I got... um, got a visit from Jack and his mum, uh, who I love dearly. They're both amazing people, um, and it's really good to have a little bit of a part in his life. But definitely for anyone who's listening today as well, um, it, it's a little bit of a journey and does take a little bit of time, um, but there's a real shortage of um, of sperm donors and donor dads in Victoria and in Australia, um, and I really think it's a form of community service and something we should be really more comfortable talking about. Um, you know, you're helping somebody create a family and and what's a little bit of your time to make sort of a lifetime of happiness for for others in our community.
1: It sounds like it's had a wonderful impact on you personally and and possibly an unanticipated wonderful impact. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So
3: the process of of being um, a donor in Victoria usually means that your, or your donation is anonymous. So, you know, Uh, It may be that uh, you get no contact with any of the families, although the the children do get your details when they turn 18. You can get notified when they're born, so you get told if you have a a son or a daughter in the month that they're born in. Um, But what you can do in Victoria, which I did, was opt in that should the mum wish, I'm happy to have whatever role they would like um, prior to... The child's eighteenth birthday, and you do that not expecting that the families will reach out, so you know it's completely up to the mum to or mums to decide whether they want to reach out. um but I was really lucky um to have built a relationship with um with Jack's two mums who are really amazing and uh, it was unexpected but an amazing delight to be able to sort of have a relationship with them and and see him grow up and share photos and share stories um and and have a bit of uh, play a part in his life and their life um and you know it was a bit unexpected but um it's definitely been a complete joy and particularly after covid which i think was a rough year for everyone uh, it was a really nice little uh just a great weekend to have him and his mums come visit come and visit me out in
1: kyneton yeah you've been on a real tree change can you tell us about that
3: so the, the final jump, I suppose, of, of tree chain, so I bought a block of land out in Cotton a number of years ago and um, was pondering what I was going to do with it. And then just before COVID hit, I made the decision to start building. Um, so for my, my sins, I actually uh, was trying to build a house during COVID, which was not a particularly pleasant experience. Uh, But the result was sort of mid to late last year. I moved out here full-time. I still get to the city quite a bit every now and then, but it's only sort of an hour by train or driving, so it's not too bad. Um, But have a garden up here, a bit more space to play in and and trying to convert what is a horse paddock into um, something a little bit more green and environmental. So I've planted about a 1,000 plants already on my property and determined to try and create... A little bit of an environment. Apparently, if you plant 160 plants, you take uh, 10 years' worth of your carbon emissions out of the planet. So I'm hopeful that I can plant enough plants to offset a lifetime of emissions. That would be the objection uh, objective, I think. So, um, but no, it's going really well, and a great little community out here.
1: It sounds like environmental activism has become a real passion of yours.
3: Uh, look, I've I've always had a, a little bit of a soft spot around environmental activism. Um, you know, we only have one planet and, and we've kind of got to um, make sure it survives for future generations as well. Um, but I did do the right thing with this house here. It's a seven-star energy-efficient house. It has grey water systems and tanks. And, and so I put a bit of my money where my mouth is in this regard as well and um, are trying to make a little bit of a difference in I can in, a, in what I can in a small way. But if all of us plant a few more trees and a few more plants, then, you know, we are really making a difference at a global scale Um so, yeah, just a little bit of a passion to get some dirt underneath my uh, my nails and, and enjoy a bit more peace and quiet um, and very much enjoying it, I must say.
1: And it sounds like, you know, you're not missing the hurly-burly of being a political candidate.
3: No, I'm not missing it at all. I'm, I'm looking forward, obviously, we've got to chill out this weekend and that's only about 20 minutes down the road for me. So I'm looking forward to to doing that and, and being social and having a drink or two and catching up with mates. Um, look, I think the big, and we've spoken about this before, James, so I'd really love to see more LGBTI people enter Parliament across Victoria. I think our big gap area is the fact that we are underrepresented um, politically. We have um, less LGBTI politicians in real terms and in numbers than any other state or territory in Australia. You know, the ACT has two ministers of government who are LGBTI um, you know we're really behind the eighth ball in that regard and, and sort of my big call-out or gap that I hope not just for the Labor Party but for all the parties going into the next uh, state election is that we have much more LGBTI candidates on the field and, and hopefully elect a few of them to Parliament as well so um, it won't be me this time round um, but I'm definitely keen to reach out and support others and and uh, hopefully get some people um, sitting in Parliament who represent the LGBTI community.
1: Sounds like you've been mentoring a few prospective candidates. Is there anyone that we could expect to put their hand up uh, for pre-selection from the LGBTIQ community who you have been mentoring?
3: Oh, look, there's a lot that I'd hope to, but I think we're a little bit far out for them to show their cards fully. But um, no, there's there's a lot of people I've, I'm very hopeful um, will put their hand up, um, not just for the Labor Party, but for a number of parties as well. I think they'd make amazing... Parliamentarians and, and definitely contribute to, to Victoria's civic and social and political and economic future. Um, fingers crossed that they'll put their names up. But uh, it, it starts; the processes start, I think, towards the end of this year, probably around September, October, November. I think the major parties will start to do pre-selection for next year. So watch this space. But no announcements here yet, James.
1: So you are you are you are mentoring a few people. Could I say that that's an oh, accurate I'm, comment? I've, yeah,
3: yeah. I'm always. Um, mentoring a couple of, of, of young LGBTI activists and community leaders. Um, but the decision as to whether they enter politics uh, will 110% be theirs. But um, I'd love to see a few of them into that field.
1: Neil Farah, always great to chat with you on 3CR. Hope to see you in the studio.
3: Absolutely. Look forward to coming in in person sometime soon. And have a great afternoon, James.
1: You too. Thanks so much, Neil. Great chat. Cheers. Neil Farrow there you are on In Your Face on 3CR with James and here are the Yeah Yeah Yeahs Mosquito. allowed to break into your phone if they have a reason to do so and what we end up with is a surveillance state what we end up with is multiple government agencies that have legal powers to surveil you when you have not been proven guilty the underlying tenet of western law is that you are innocent until proven guilty what we're moving to is suspicion is enough to take away rights in order to build a case towards guilt Now that's not a legal framework
3: that we agreed to
1: Absolutely keep Radical Radio alive. Subscribe to 3CR. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave, taking us out of the Cranberries with Dream. I'll catch you next week on In Your Face.